This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's been three years since our former governor, Andrew Cuomo, signed an executive order to admit over 9,000 COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. Many of you know about my advocacy in trying to shine a light on that deadly mandate to find out why it was put in place for 46 days and why families were never notified of this while all of us were in lockdown and told to stay as far away from the COVID-19 virus as possible. To this day, we still don't know why our government decided to flood the most vulnerable in the places that they were supposed to be kept safe. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk to one of the most vocal lawmakers in New York City about this tragedy. The Honorable Ron Kim is the chair for the Committee on Aging and has led the charge in trying to save lives and bring change to our nursing homes and elderly care in general as the head of the aging committee. A couple of weeks ago, I joined Ron in Albany with other grieving families for hearings on reviewing and examining the state of the long-term care ombudsman program. And even though it seems like the rest of the world has moved on, Ron, Kim, and I are never giving up our quest for answers and accountability. It's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's about right or wrong. And I'm grateful for his friendship and for coming in today to help shine a light. Ron Kim, you made the dean's list. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, the dean's list. Yeah. (laughs) You were a smart kid in school, though, right? Uh, You know, despite despite the stereotype (laughs) of... What do you mean? Okay. Asian American. All right. Well, you're but, supposed to be a smart dude. But you know, I wasn't. I wasn't the uh, the sharpest pencil. Come on. Um, I, you know, my dad growing up, he was more uh, concerned about me scoring touchdowns <laughs> on the football field than bringing home an A plus paper, which okay. is very, very different it, than the, than a t- typical Tiger Asian parent. Right. Um, so I, I had a I had a unique upbringing. My dad was really into sports. Like the moment I could like walk, he put me on like roller skates to develop my leg strength. Really, like he was really into it. Yeah. Roller skates <laughs> because we didn't have we didn't have um, rollerblades back then. Okay. It was roller skates. Yeah, of course I remember. Yeah. But he, his thinking was, all right, you know, we gotta get an advantage. How old were you? I, was like, <laughs> I remember I must have been like three or four, and I never I never stayed home because I was just conditioned to be outside. Yeah. Be active on a bike, always bruised up, you know, and <laughs> I wouldn't come home until my mom would have like supper and yell, like, come back in, come back in. Right. For, that's just, that's how like every kid should grow up. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I was just talking about that, about Matthew and Theodore, my kids. Yeah. I'm so glad that they're meeting, meeting at the schoolyard, meeting at the park. Every weekend they go out, they yeah. play touch football. Thank goodness, right? Yeah, yeah. But even in, but you know, even when I came here 
Um, as an immigrant yes. uh, to Flushing and Queens, Flushing is a very congested uh, immigrant town. I still remember when I came here, and I was on the sidewalk playing stickball and yeah. like you know just being always active as a kid. Yeah. Even even in, living in an apartment, I just never stayed in the apartment. We were yes. always outside doing yes. something. But now um, I just feel so bad for the young kids. And yeah. Like I met, I was, I was, you know, I was, I was with the family vacation mm-hmm. on a cruise that was delayed, and I remember eating at this restaurant, and every kid on this table was had an the iPad. Oh, iPad! Like, yeah, we were on a cruise. Oh. They're doing a cruise family, and then, but they're just so conditioned, and, and the iPad and the phones are normalized. They just can't get off of it, right. even when we're on a vacation. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. you know what? The parents are to blame for that, too. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. I, you know, listen, when the kids were younger and we needed some quiet time in the back seat, you know, I I get it. It's a great uh, device for that, you know, so you can think while you're driving. Yeah. But you're right. When we're on vacation, they need to go. That needs to go away. Yeah. Yeah. Just like really just be in the moment. Um, and just capture everything in, be osmosis. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that our kids growing up have the same experiences that we all did. Yeah. Like the memories and the images that we had growing up. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I mean, and they just get so much information every yes. single second. That's like, scary too. Like, yeah, and how do you consume all that? I don't know. Yeah. And we don't know what the results are going to be, Correct. right? Yeah. Uh, so when did you come to the United States? Uh, I was seven years old. Uh, it was 1987. Uh, and it was right after when the Mets had won the World Series. <laughs> and we were in Flushing, New York. We could see Shea Stadium you know, oh, from where, wow. where we moved. And that's why I'm an eternal Mets fan. Um, you know, and it was um, it was a great time. My parents were immigrants. They're small business owners. Mm-hmm. They gave up everything they had. Uh, to come here and, and pursue a better life really for me. Mm. You know, my dad was you know, a relatively successful um, electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. He worked in the Middle East and all these construction projects. He traveled. He was a company man. Uh, he had an apartment in South Korea. Like he had real estate, but he gave it all up because he thought, you know, in, this, in that country, in South Korea at that time, um, I was limited. My child was limited in what he could dream of doing oh, when he grew up. Yeah, and he won- and, and and secondly, he just thought that America had a bigger heart. Mm. I don't know how to articulate that. It's, that's it, a great way in, to in articulate direct, it. In direct, yes. you know, language in Korean language, but that's the best way to translate that. Like uh, something about American spirit that they're generous. Mm. Like they, they see the world in a, with the big heart. And not close-minded, mm-hmm. uh, because when you live in a country like South Korea, it's hyper-competitive. Everyone lives on top of each other. You can't be happy for your neighbor's son when they get into a good school. Just be authentically happy for each other as mm-hmm. neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but he thought that coming here um, will have a bigger bigger heart, and I can have a bigger dream and aspiration to to be a happier person growing up. Wow. So and his your uncle. Uh, was the one that helped get your family here. Yeah, my uncle came here first uh, with my grandmother. My uncle was uh, in the U.S., uh, was was in the Korean military, came here, went to dental school, became mm. one of the first uh, dentists of Korean descent in New York and opened up a shop later on. 
But before he opened up his office, he joined the U.S. Army after after going to dental school because he wanted to practice right away. Mm-hmm. And as an immigrant, it was hard to kind of integrate and mm-hmm. get a, a, an office, professional office, even if you have a dentistry degree. So he got experience right away in the military and then ended up becoming a captain in the U.S. Army because of his skill set. Mm-hmm. So he was an officer. And through the Army network, uh, he was able to sponsor us and his fa- extended family to come here um, to this country. Wow. And that, so that was in the 80s? That was in the 80s. Yeah. And he, if it wasn't for him, um, you know, we, we wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have my name. He named me after you know, Ronald Reagan because he was like also one of probably the only Republicans of Korean descent <laughs> at that time. Um, so he was just a big fan. I mean, he wasn't, I don't know, I don't know if he was a fan of, if he was a true Republican or he was just a fan of Ronald Reagan. Well, I think, you know, yeah, yeah. some people, I don't even really think of Ronald Reagan as having Republican or Democrat. I just think of him as Ronald Reagan. You know, he was a, he was an actor, obviously, but he was a larger than life figure, I think. Yeah. He just, I think, I think for a person like my uncle, it just give him that kind of grand gesture. He was a Ronald Reagan for him. You know, I mean, looking back, I don't agree with a lot of the policies mm-hmm. of of the Reagan era, mm-hmm. but I think the figure himself gave people like my uncle a lot of hope wow. that we could dream bigger here. Mm-hmm. Did you so? Did you see yourself as following in the footsteps of political life? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, my dad. Um, like I said before, he came here, gave up everything, and opened up a mom and pop grocery store. Typical Koreans, you know, in the eighties, opened up a grocery store in Upper Manhattan. And despite it being a Korean grocery, every other corner, every block, they just thought that all right, well, if we just wake up a little earlier and work a little harder, yeah. and not take any vacations, we can make ends meet. Mm-hmm. They just work super hard. And I saw that growing up, but 10 years later, um, I saw them file for bankruptcy mm-hmm. because the the landlord at the time, you know, raised the rent like by 350% overnight. Ugh. And they try to oust the tenants at the, the to bring in like more chain store type of businesses. Mm-hmm. So they were bullying and targeting and, and directing city agencies to t- fine you know, my dad's business. And I saw that at a young age and no one was sticking up for, for the small, the smaller guys. Mm-hmm. And I saw how horrible and unfair the system was. And I still remember the day before we shut down the grocery store, my dad um, asked me to come in after school on a Friday and we're like four thirty. He, he put down the shelter and he just destroyed everything in the store when I, he was, he gave me a bat and we just like, like cleaned house. I don't know. For a long time, I don't know why we did that, but I think for him, it was just therapeutic that he was shutting this place down and he just wanted some sense of like control, control. Yeah. 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 That was it. Yeah. And I just, you know, and, and, and that left an indelible mark um, in, the, in the way that I shape, uh, in the way that they shaped me in terms of helping people. Mm. And I, I told myself one day, it might not be politics, but somehow, somewhere, 
if I get a chance, I would be a voice for people like my parents, the underdogs, the small business owners that give everything they have but still failed, mm. um, and the immigrants that came here to really pursue, you know, the dream and and bought into it. You know that it, their hard work should pay off. Yes. Um, so that's why I got into politics and public service, so I can con- I can really um, fulfill that mission. Mm. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. And how long have you been doing what you're doing now? Uh, I've been a public servant since college, uh, since I graduated from college. Okay. I, I studied political science, philosophy. Um, at upstate New York at a small liberal arts school called Hamilton College. And then I went after I gradu- graduated, I started working for elected officials for various uh, government agencies, and I got my master's. And when the opportunity came, I ran for city council first okay. and when I turned 30, and I lost. Um, I, I didn't even make the ballot. It was like an excruciatingly painful experience and embarrassing. But I bet you learned a lot. I learned so much, you know, from that experience. I didn't after 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 that loss. I didn't even get out of my apartment for like a month. I was so depressed. Oh. Um, but it really defined my character. Yeah. And and really made me validate that you know there's purpose behind this. It's not just the title or being a politician. Yes. But. I realized that I was able to pick myself up because there was a purpose behind why I wanted to be in public service yeah. and and why I was so passionate about having a platform, having a medium to be a, and having a soapbox to deliver for people. Mm. Before, I had a giant chip on my shoulder and I was a student athlete. I played football for 10 years of my life, including in college. And there was something very just about playing football. like doesn't matter what your race is, what your background is, what your color is. If you can run over someone, you can run over someone. <laughs> it's, a, it's very meritocratic. Like, yes. And if you earn the respect on the field, yeah, doesn't matter. Like, they respect you. Yeah. And I, I felt so gratified because of that sport, because of that fairness. Yes. And my dad, my parents, when I you know, growing up, there's like many like immigrant parents, all you have to do is to study a little harder and then you show the rest of them when you grow up and you know, become a doctor, become a lawyer, and then you'll be okay. Yeah. That wasn't good enough. Like right. every injustice that I felt, I wanted something now. Okay. And the football was that for me for a long time. Um, but then I found, when I found uh, a political voice, yes. I realized this is even more powerful and more meaningful because now you can be a soapbox for potentially thousands and millions of people who who lack the voice yeah. in the system. That time that you felt depressed in your apartment, what was the turnaround? Like what made you get out of bed and say, I'm going to do this, try this again? Yeah, it was just that it was a very um, turning point and when I turned 30 because all that time, I think many of us uh, growing up, we've been taught to feel like validated and validated by successes and failures. Yeah. But it was in that moment when I started to switch where I leaned in harder in the failures. Mm. And now I wasn't ashamed and went back and tried to learn. 
Like, what exactly did I do wrong here? Like, I thought I pay my dues. I'm a great public servant. I worked at all these agencies. I'm competent. I know how to deliver things. Yes. But I realized I didn't know the politics. Mm. That I was really bad at understanding the establishment, the Democratic Party. You know what they respected, what kind of a political currency that was needed to yeah. get endorsements. Uh-huh. Um, because I, you know, I, I'm a poor immigrant kid. I don't have a, a wealthy father to throw money around and mm-hmm. buy the endorsements. Like I had to earn it all on my own. Yes. So I went back and went to the unions, went to the stakeholders, and started lining things up. So two years later, when another seat opened, I've secured the endorsements of everyone, mm-hmm. and I was the leading candidate. Uh, for the assembly seat, and I won by about 200 votes in the first election that I ran. Wow! What does an assemblyman do? An assemblyman, despite what it sounds like, we don't just assemble stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But it's it's basically a uh, you know U.S. Congress at the state level. So okay. we are the state Congress members. Some states call it state representatives. Some people call it the aldermen. We in New York called the assembly member, uh, assembly members. Yes, and uh, we there's about a hundred there's 150 assembly members, 63 state senators. It's a bicameral state, just like Congress. We have two bodies and the executive office, mm-hmm. and we uh, our primary goal is to pass an on time budget every year by April 1st. Mm-hmm. And we also passed thousands and thousands of legislations. Unlike the U.S. Congress, uh, where there's a lot of gridlock, right. a lot of the legislative activities that impacts our education, health care, insurance, all goes to the state level that okay. the public most of the time don't pay attention to. Right. But it impacts uh, a tremendous amount of people. Yes. More people need to pay attention to what's happening in their state. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's also the states that can impact big ticket um, federal policies, including like the gay marriage, you know, mm. which, which uh, happened because state by state by state, they were just passing these state laws and and reached a a breaking point where the federal government had no choice but to step in and say, okay, this this is a a thing that we need to to validate. Wow. It it is fascinating. I mean, has it always interested you, this how to make laws, how to, you know, represent the people? Yeah, the— the policies have always fascinated me, but I'm more I'm very much more interested in uh, the execution of policies, uh, the administration. Uh, it's it's a lot less sexier topic, and people <laughs> don't really care about how things get actually done. I do. Let's let's talk yeah. about the sausage. <laughs> yeah, but you know because like, we live in such an era where everything's about headlines. Yes. Everything's about ribbon cutting. Right. And oh, I just gave this nonprofit 100 million dollars. I did my job, but you know why? So the left, the, the progressives all love to give contracts to nonprofits called that a win. And the right, you know, constantly just prop up more policing, more policing funding and call that a win. Okay. But no one tries to meet in the middle and tries to work together to build up the state capacity Mm -hmm. to help people. Mm -hmm. So either we are going towards an entirely military state or a contracted out state where we don't have any responsibility to help people. Mm -hmm. Now, I think some Republicans, Democrats understand this dilemma and they're trying behind the scenes to understand 
okay, like how do we build back our capacity to intervene and help individuals that are in need? Uh, mental health, uh, seniors in nursing homes. Are we going to just continue to rely on lobbyists and third parties to take care of that and call that a win? Oh, well, we raised the reimbursement rate by 5%. I did my job. I'm going to send out some mailers to my constituents that I'm helping old people and then hopefully get their votes. But we need to be smarter as voters. Yes. Like, we need to understand just the headlines. You need to go beyond the headlines and hold politicians accountable how are you actually administering these laws? Who's executing these policies? Yes. Three years ago, uh, so this will air on Sunday. Three years ago, March 25th, 2020, uh, the former governor signed a mandate to put thousands of sick patients into nursing homes. And I'm so frustrated, Ron, because I feel like we still... We still haven't even passed the starting line of trying to find answers. Yeah, I I just think we've institutionally covered it up. I don't even know how to disrupt the cycle of cover-ups anymore. Mm. It's just, I don't know where to begin and I don't know who to, you know, point to because by design, the people who are part of it were like three commissioners away from them, right? So people just institutionally moved on. When you when you go back, well, this guy Commissioner Zucker, they're like, who the heck does Commissioner Zucker? They don't. They don't even. They're gone. They're gone. They're just like they don't even know. But look at what we're doing, and look at what United Kingdom has done. Yes. Um, same exact policies. Yes. Same exact decisions. The highest court came out last year and told the, the government that you broke the law here. Mm. You sent people to a nursing home to die mm-hmm. and you took away their rights. Yes. You broke the law and somebody needs to be held accountable. And now there's uh, talks of bringing back the former minister of health or secretary of state of, of the UK mm-hmm. who was in charge of the long the, the care facilities and filing criminal charges yeah. against the minister. Yeah. I mean, he resigned. He, like, like he also had to step down through... Very sim- harassment, harassment charges, right? Like having an affair with whatever. Governor. Yeah, from yeah. the governor. But now they're coming, bringing him back and say, no, there's a, there's a even even more of a serious charge. Wow, it's that, like mirrored. Yeah, it's like mirrored. And I'm just like, oh my God, like that's, they're, they're, have, they have some degree of accountability. I'm not sure if it's, they're going to go all the way, right. but at least they're trying. They're trying. Yeah, but here it's like I'm reduced to sound like a crazy person now. Right. I, I, <laughs> yes. Like it's gaslighting. It's like it's, yeah. it is. Is the number one word of 2022. <laughs> and we should. You and I should be the face of that example. What it feels to be gaslit. Yes. Twenty four seven. Yeah. <laughs> I know, and I. It is frustrating, and I think it's going to come down to lawsuits. Um, it has to because I just feel like I. I just don't have any faith, unfortunately. In the current governor, I don't have any faith in uh, Washington, D.C., where I had leaders actually promise me that there were going to be hearings. They were going to subpoena Andrew Cuomo. Uh, they were going to get to the bottom of it, sort of patting me on the head. Don't worry. It'll happen. And then it's crickets. And, you know, I I still talk about it on this podcast. I, I bring people in from the nursing home industry. Uh, I bring, you know, people in who... Uh, you know, 
bring their loved ones into their homes to take care of them. I really want to continue to shine a spotlight on this because we don't have any business putting Band-Aids on things if we don't go back to, you know, what happened, the, the incredible amount of death that happened to our seniors when the one thing we knew, Ron, at the very beginning was that the elderly were the most susceptible and shame on everyone uh, for not protecting them. Yeah. And it, it wasn't, I would be much more forgiving if we were all completely blindsided. Yes. It, and there was no warning signs. Right. And every, and, and I, of course, like, I would be very empathetic to whether you're a Republican, Democrat, if you make mistakes and we're all blindsided and you tried mm-hmm. to hold people accountable in that moment, I would forgive everyone. Yes. But that's not what happened here. 2014, there was a, a contract by the federal government warning states like New York, you need to prepare a hospital and nursing home surge in emergencies like this. 2014. 2014. 2017, United Kingdom, going back to UK, they had a secret a report that modeled out the worst case doomsday. And they told the ministry, you will be killing hundreds and thousands of seniors and older adults if you don't get ahead of this in a pandemic-like model. So so all the warning signs were there. We don't know what happened with the federal money that was given in. We do know that was given to a a Health Research Institute, a shadow nonprofit arm of the Department of Health, where they hired all these non-qualified people, including uh, Richard Azerpati, the former communications director's wife, who was there for pretty much a no-show job, you know, like, and there's no accountability because it's not a government agency. It's a nonprofit. They don't have, they're not susceptible to FOIL. They're not susceptible to any oversight. So this is where all these billions and billions of dollars go where people just take money and take advantage. So we have no way of knowing where that money came from? And I've been asking for for the last several months, couple of years. So where did that money go? What was the outcome? Did your How much money was it? Uh I believe it was like in the millions to come to come up with the plan to to prepare the state for hospital and and nursing home surges. And what, when did that happen? When was that going 2014 on? was when they got the contract. Okay. Um, and so we still don't know where that... Yeah. And the person who who secured that contract <laughs> re, at the peak of COVID, April 2020, resigned. He just, he left the scene because he was, um, he was not qualified to be in that role to for, to prepare the state for an emergency pandemic oh my even goodness. though he was he have, he has 7 years and, and money to prepare for this moment so that's the deeper level of accountability i think we need to go and one by one and, and bring people out and yeah. subpoena people and say yes. what did you do with this money and who who told you what who told you when like what to do and get to the truth mm-hmm. and unless we can do that uh we can never um Get policies right. But isn't it because it's it runs deeper? You know, it's like hospitals, lobbyists. Um, there are so many tentacles that go out, you know, and, and you wonder if these elected officials, governors, uh, if they have any monetary reason, uh, you know, monetary, um, if, if they have any... Um, reason to be involved uh, outside of their office. Yeah. 
No, it's it's a complete cash cow, right? Like the ninety eight percent of hospital nursing home have been privatized in New York. We don't actually administer any care uh, directly. So the moment that we get Medicaid Medicare dollars. It goes to a, the hands of a private intermediary, uh, what they call managed care organizations yes. or insurance companies, uh-huh. and then they give it to the hospitals, nursing homes, home care. But all of it has become privatized. There's only two, I think, state-run hospitals, a SUNY hospitals, yes, and every budget they undercut, they undercut, they try to downsize because they want to hand it over. Because when you do privatize it, it becomes a perfect. Way to monetize the government system. Mm-hmm. Billions and billions of dollars we handed out to hospital lobbyists and executives, and in return, they fill the coffers of executive officers like the governor and the mayor's you office. You said it perfectly. So, so why they don't want to disrupt that? No, they, it's like a perfect system where everyone's enriching themselves of public dollars. Yeah, but we have, but but we have no accountability of how those dollars are administered. Right. So. I don't have the exact figure, but I would say if you if you're giving out a hundred dollars of care care work, yep. by the time it finally reaches to the end patient, we're probably getting ten dollars of services because so many people are taking that money oh, out of the system. It's infuriating. Yeah, and I it's it's a beast for I think one person us yeah. <laughs> to take on because they're they're very powerful. But we're gonna try, you know I. Friends of ours, the Arbinis, they have a lawsuit. You know, Sean and myself have been talking about doing that as well. Um, because I, I just feel like we have no hope unless we do it on our own. And that's an expensive process too, trying to get lawyers and just trying to get a lawyer to go up against a Goliath, like a former governor, like his henchmen, like the hospital association, like a former health commissioner. Um, that is really daunting. Yeah. But I just feel like, what other choice do we have at this point? Yeah, and I, I applaud you, Janice, for not giving up. I think most would have just gone away and just try to forget him and move on. But you and their beanies and... Um, and other families have continued to persist and and try to continue to use these traumatic experiences into a, into a purposeful activism. Um, and I think a lot of people are rooting for you because there are many others who don't, who can't do that, um, but they're quietly you know wishing that there was an, there's a positive outcome here. Yeah. So, what do you think has to be done? Yeah, I think there has to be a full counting of the mistakes, uh, which starts from 2014 on, Mm -hmm. and hold people accountable for mistakes that they made. I think the governor, you know, if he if he had the former governor, if he had stayed on, he was uh, dangerously close to exposing the entire system. Yes, and he had to go down, Mm. Um, and for. Taking that fall, the people that are actually in control of him, <laughs> the powerful individuals, are protecting him. Yes. Are, and they're rewarding him. Yes. And they're going to financially support him if he tries to make a comeback. 
running for U.S. Senate or whatever that he's trying to float around. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, this society, he knows that, the people behind him knows that, that this society still don't believe women. Mm -hmm. So so, So I think for him to be accused of sexual assault, harassment, in his mind, he probably believes, calculates he could still come back yes. by attacking the victims, by you know vilifying uh, Charlotte Bennett and and the Lindsay um, uh, Boylan, Boylan, yep. yeah, Lindsay Boylan and others, because he knows deep inside the society still is very very sexist, mm. and he can get away with those behaviors, mm-hmm. but. He cannot recover from a criminal fraud investigation of killing uh, thousands and thousands of older adults. So he had to dodge that, and he ha- and he had to get uh, people to cover it up. Yes, and then come back um, to politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I had Tudor Dixon uh, in the studio, uh, the woman that was running against Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. And she, her grandmother died in a nursing home during uh, COVID. And um, Michigan had, you know, the same mandate, essentially, as we did, putting COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. And I said to her, I was like, you know, at least Gretchen didn't write a book And win an Emmy, you know, like, I just feel like he was so arrogant and bold and really felt so untouchable that that was really, I think, what brought him down the most. Yeah. Yeah. But he almost got away with it. Well, he's still sort of getting away with it right now. I mean, yeah. I mean, there was some push. There was there was pushback. His brother. Uh, for helping him, right, was ostracized, and now I don't know what he's doing. He's trying to sue CNN, but for, you know, there was some level of pushback by society and by mm-hmm. our system, but there was no accountability. Mm-hmm. Right? Resignation and someone getting fired or resigning from CNN is not it's accountability. Not. No, uh, it's just a temporary thing that bruises maybe their egos, but he's still walking away mm-hmm. with $5.2 million in his book deal. Right, and he's still, yeah. his lawyers are being paid by his, you know, campaign his money, campaign yeah. money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also infuriating. Yeah, and I, it, but again, he played his cards. He knows where power exists mm. at a level that most of us don't even understand. Yes. Um, being an intergenerational political family and being born on third base, the, yep. the way that they were. He knows where all the players are. And he complies. And he knows how he can get at right. them, get back at them. Right. And he complies with their wishes. And yeah. he does their he does their bidding. And for doing that, for being a good soldier to the super wealthy people and powerful people, they're going to try to protect and take care of him. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. I want you to go back to that moment where, you know, you get that phone call from him because you're you're the one person telling the truth uh, because you were in that meeting where they basically admitted they were covering up the numbers. You know, that's another thing. He was actively covering up the numbers, not counting those that died in the hospital. And you're in that closed door meeting, seeing that Zoom call with um, Melissa DeRosa. Did you know in that moment that she had made a huge error by admitting that they were covering up the numbers? Yeah. Um, 
first of all, I insisted because I was in Albany for that meeting. Yeah, that we should just meet together. Mm. Like get off the Zoom. Wow! If they had taken your advice, because because my when I when I when I have high meetings, I'm the type of person that by just practice, like leave the phones outside. Yes, let's just have an honest discussion. Discussion. Yeah. But they insisted it has to be over Zoom, and I'm like, okay, let's just do it. (laughs) But if you think if if I assume if you're the ones that's pushing for Zoom, you'd be very calculated yeah. in what you say but to my to the credit of my colleagues they kept pushing and pushing like why did you do it, it was like a, it was like a scene out of a few good men like tell us the truth tell us the truth and Melissa just like lost it <gasps> you can't handle the truth it was that kind of a moment wow and he's just like they were asking for this they're asking for this and Trump was trying to you know you know get the governor we didn't know what to give to the FBI like and all of a sudden you know, it was actually the former chair is no longer there of the health committee. He starts texting the group, the the, the members. Yes. Uh, I just think Melissa admitted she obstructed justice. Oh, my God. So it was already just like, yeah, boom. Like, as soon as she said it, it was a circulated message among members. And we just kind of like, holy moly. <laughs> like, let's just not say anything anymore because right. she just completely. Yeah. Implicated herself. Yes. Um, and then, you know, the next day, um, you know, because because this was Zoom, how could you actually monitor who's listening in, who was yes. recording? Right. Like there could be uh, hundreds of people and reporters <laughs> right. listening into this. Were there reporters on the call? No, they weren't no. invited. But like, how can you? T- any it, any of the members could have invited people sure. to sit in the background, and yeah. and I think every single person is recording. This very high-profile meeting, right? Um, he wasn't part of it, though. It was just he wasn't her. part of it. Okay. It was a commissioner and his top people, yes. the administration. Okay, and uh, it got out to the media, and immediately, you know, the reporter, the investigative reporter Bernadette, points you know, very zooms in in that point of the conversation when she heard what happened. Yes, and then she just blows the whole thing up. Yeah, I remember and, it. And I actually, you know, at some point try to retract um, because I felt sympathetic to Melissa DeRosa. You did. Um, because it wasn't – she didn't, she's not the one who pulled the trigger here. Right. She's, the, she's a messenger. Yes. And she works for the governor and the former governor. And the principal himself should be held accountable, not Melissa DeRosa. Okay. But throughout that process, the governor got on the phone – and try to kill the story and try to convince me to tell a different uh, interpretation for what I heard. Yes. He even went as far as says, you didn't hear this. You heard that, Ron. Wow. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you witness a crime. Yeah. And you get a phone call from the other side and said, hey, you didn't see what, what just happened. Yeah. You're going to tell the police that you saw this, not right. that. And he tried to use in a very intimidating matter, um, you know, he asked, telling me that I've never seen how angry he could be. And also, and, and also like, talk about, like, the code. You know, there's a certain uh, way of conducting yourself in this business. Mm-hmm. 
Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, right. So I have to trade with you and covering up and lying for you. Like yeah. that's how. That's pretty much what he was implying. Like mm-hmm. you, you, at you act in line, and I'll take care of you. Because, mm. and, and in that moment, um, I think most uh, people would have met with him, and you know, for lack of a better word, comply and being as good gracious. And I'm sure. If I had done that, he probably would have made me a, a congressman by now. Because wow. that's how politics work. Yeah. And I made a very choice. Like, even if my career ends in this moment, yes. I am willing to go die on this hill. Yep. Because I made promises to all these older adults, seniors, and my uncle himself who died in that facility uh, at the peak of COVID. What would he be thinking of me mm. if I sold him out in this moment? Right, and so I think for me, uh, my 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 main message to other public servants and politicians, like if you're really in it for the right reasons, there are issues that you're willing to don that hill for, and that's the level of passion and purpose you should have. Whether you I, I agree with you or disagree with you on policies, mm-hmm. like you should be in it for the you know for for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel now? This is. Three years later, you know, we've gone through this together. I, I Obviously, I know you as a lawmaker, but I think of you more as a friend. Uh, and it's tough, you know, going to Albany and being so grateful that you gave us a platform finally uh, to be there um, to tell our stories. And even though it was about an ombudsman program, you know, we were able to say, well, here, here's what happened three years ago. And the, how, here's how the implications could be now when we're trying to have an oversight over this. You know, are you optimistic that we will get answers? Are you optimistic that if this happens again, we'll know what to do? Uh, you know, I don't know what your relationship is with Kathy Hochul, but I am disappointed in her. Um, you know, her promising blue ribbon panels and investigations. And yes, I want to get to the bottom of this. Well, as we keep getting further from the starting point, um, I feel like it is being brushed under the rug. Yeah. And I, I am, I am, I am very disappointed um, with the current governor and the way that she's handled long-term care policies and centered solutions around the families, especially, you know, when we um, took the time to share our grief with her and mm-hmm. sit down with her privately I don't, I don't know if I ever told you this, but about like at that meeting at the governor's office, mm-hmm. when we finally brought in the families and we had like an hour with her, Yes, um, we know we took the COVID test going in yeah. the elevator, we're yeah. just waiting anxiously. About like literally 10 minutes before we walked into that conference room, I got a call from the hospital because my mom uh, was at that time in the hospital uh, from COVID. Yes. And she was intubated at that time mm-hmm. in ICU. And at that, right before I walked in, uh, I had to make a decision because they were saying, we need to take the take out the intubation. It's been a week. She's not getting better. And we need to make a call. And as the only child I had, I was and his, and her health proxy, I had to make a difficult decision, and and here I am, going into this meeting. Yes. And so, you, as you can imagine, 
the status of my mind yeah. and all the stuff that was flowing as I'm trying so hard to also give my uncle and our families that were in that room and beyond level of closure and accountability. And, she, and the governor, even at that moment, used um, what my, I never told her what, was, what my mom was going through, yeah. but she came out and said, I know what your mom's going through. I know what you're going through with your mother, and I'm sorry that you're going through it. And she went as, she went as far as trying to connect with me on that level. Mm. So I just, I bring that up because I thought that that could have been the moment that we have this connection with her, mm-hmm. that she could, that she cares, mm-hmm. that she called my dad when my mother did pass from COVID um, or called me and then she, and then insisted that she speak to my father to give her sympathies. Mm-hmm. And those are all very kind acts and it means a lot that she did that. But from there on, I just had so much hope that she cares, she understands. So let's get to um, challenging the failing things and getting it right. Yes. But turn after turn after turn, it's just the same old things. Yeah. Uh, if not worse than the previous governor in, in terms of the budgets and the policies that she was putting out forward. Mm-hmm. Why do you still do it? Do, I mean... You could have other careers. I mean, I, I, I've I seen you on television. You do a very good job. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Shaz. I think you're biased. I think you're my friend. And you just, uh, no. You're always no, I think that you, you speak from the heart. You're a very authentic person. Um, I, you know, I think there would be a platform for you if you wanted to get into broadcasting. Why do you still do what you do uh, today? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, I think there are, there is a transition happening. Uh, I think the Kathy Hochul's, uh, the uh, the Donald Trumps, yeah. the Andrew Cuomo's, they're kind of the last of the Mohicans. Really? I think, I think they're on their way out. Huh. And I think there's a whole new wave of new leaders that want to rebuild this amazing country mm. from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Be- and they're taking charge. They're, see- they're seeking seats in the school boards. Um, they're running for office at the local level. And in the next five, 10 years, I want to be there, um, usher in this new era to make sure that we're not just putting band-aids anymore. Yes. And make sure to make sure that, you know, we don't have... Uh, that was was it Zennials? It was in, I don't even know what I don't even know what they're called anymore. You know, you know, think that politics, TikTok, and Instagram, right. and everything happens overnight. Mm-hmm. That the hard work uh, is required to build the capacity to deliver service. We used to be good at this. We used to uh, get involved uh, every time the private sector is not delivering service. We would intervene and say, "Hey." Your agriculture sector is raising the pricing of our of our families, so we're going to get involved and buy up all these stock of grains so we can pr- control the price. We used to do all that stuff, but now we just have a hands-off 
approach mm-hmm. and things are getting worse and worse. And, it's, and I think there's a great opportunity for long-term care. Uh, we're going to see this population quadruple yes. in size. Yes, one in six already over 65. And 30, in the last 10 years, I think 32% increase of poverty among older adults. Yes. So it is a fully blown crisis and it's going to require the best minds from the, the the corporate, private government to come together and put aside their special individual interest yeah. and figure out how do we activate our local county governments to get back into the business of care. Mm. And that's where I think Republicans and Democrats can come together and work because there are great examples of upstate. And, I, and Democrats would never never admit that a Republican county executive who's doing something great in their county in upstate New York. Yeah. But there are county-run nursing homes yes. that had like zero COVID deaths. Because guess what? When you pay your workers well, when you and when those nurses are considered public servants mm-hmm. and they get a public pension and they get the access to all the cars and county governments, you can deliver continuous care and the workers are taken care of. Wow. Um, so there's models that work, but we don't want to we don't want to expand it because the hospital lobbyists, Ugh. nursing home lobbyists, they want to make sure they can exploit and extract as much money yes. and and then that buy circle. And, and buy off politicians in the back end. Yes, that circle you just started talking about. Well, I want to be part of that. I don't know if I could do what you do, but I really want to be part of a solution. Well, Governor Governor Janice Dean, <laughs> no. and, are, you, are you making an announcement soon? No. Or so? When you say, that you ne- I, I all, when people say, I'm never going to do that, I mean, usually means something no. is happening. Oh, you're funny, Ron. Oh, my goodness. Well, then, if that happens, then you'd have to be somehow part of it. But no, I. you know what? I. That's... I think to be a governor, you should start off like you did, you know, doing the small leadership roles to lead to that moment, right? I don't, I, I just don't think it should be somebody that, that has a name or was on TV for a period of time. Like, do the work, understand what your office is, right? Um, but what I mean is, I want to be part of the solution by helping you deliver that message, going to those nursing home facilities that are doing it right and making a a proper model for others. I don't know how we do it, but I do want to do it together. Um, And, you know, through our grief brings our purpose. And I'm just so grateful that we got to know one another because I know our friendship is going to last a very long time. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy uh, as well in our partnership and um, and Sean as well, your <laughs> husband. It's great. Uh, I heard he's finally retiring. He is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's all. He's almost there. I'd okay. say that it's the summer. You know, every time we see you, we're like, oh, Sean's going to retire. <laughs> you know, I never asked you, would you ever want to run for governor someday? I think for me, the highest office that intrigues me is mm-hmm. the state controller's office. Oh, okay. Uh, Dinapoli. Dinapoli's office. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the sole trustee of a $200 plus billion public pension. Mm. And there's a lot you can do to hold the bad in people in, in the nursing home sector accountable. Yes. You know, Tom um, hasn't activated that power. Uh, to hold some of these um, hedge funds and private equity firms 
that are feeling the bad behavior accountable. Okay. And and and, and if I ever get a chance to be in a role like that, yes. I will use the power of. Uh, public capital, public yes. dollars to hold the private sector accountable. You know, he did do some good in that he oh, yeah. put out his uh, audit. Tom's my guy. Like he, uh, uh, I'm not saying I'm going to run against him, but <laughs> okay. he's, you know, he's. Um, I think he's yeah. done what he can at this point. Yeah. But if there's a way that we can push him to do more, Correct. and he's also, you know, he's talked to the Arbini brothers. You know, yeah. had phone calls with them, like. I respect that. And for me, I don't care what background you're from. I don't care if you're Democrat, you're Republican, uh, Libertarian, Independent, doesn't matter. If you're in it for the right reasons and you want to help and you're doing everything that you can with the power that you have been given, I respect that immensely. And I respect him, Tom DiNapoli, for doing what he could do. But if there's a way that we can get a meeting with him. Yeah. <laughs> To do more, yeah. Um, you know, I'm happy to do that. But uh, but thank you again, Ron. Yeah, um, thank you. This was great. Okay, and well, to be continued. <laughs> to be continued. I don't think I'll ever be the governor, but I thank you for that. <laughs> okay. Thank you again, Ron Kim. If you want to hear more about Ron's incredible story, not only about his advocacy for the elderly, but his tremendous journey being a kid from South Korea, now living his American dream, I wrote about Ron in my book, I Am the Storm, because his story is truly one of rising above the challenge despite adversity and the odds against him. To me, Ron Kim is the definition of an American hero. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.